0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Katherine Braubach. And this week we are covering a Tommy and Tuppence short story. We love
1: Tommy and Tuppence. Of
0: course we do. That would be the unbreakable alibi. We are nearing the end of the Partners in Crime collection, slowly oh. and so much surely making our way through it. Tell us a little bit about when this one was published.
1: Well, so it is actually a later story. It's published in something called the Holly Leaves, which is a Christmas edition of illustrated sporting and dramatic news. So it's published in December nineteen twenty eight. Which does give you a Christie short story for Christmas, but is much later than actually the other Tommy Tuppence stories that we've covered.
0: Yeah, 1928 is relatively late for this collection. Obviously, it's still significantly earlier than the novels we're currently covering. But again, though, a Christie story published around Christmas that isn't particularly Christmassy, is it?
1: I would not say so.
0: That trend holds, so maybe in a way it was appropriate to do this right after Hercule Poirot's Christmas.
1: Perhaps so. So um, is there a victim, Kemper?
0: Well, there sort of is a victim. This is a curious little story. This is one of Christie's more <laughs> larkish kind of short stories, yeah. is one way of putting it. If there is a victim, the victim would be Mr. Montgomery Jones, who is a young man, not necessarily the sharpest tack <laughs> in the box of collected characters in this story. Poor
1: Montgomery Jones. <laughs> I mean, I feel just even bad talking about him
0: he's a little dim but he seems like a nice gent so since we don't really have a victim we kind of don't have suspects but let's just talk about the characters within this story
1: we have miss una drake she's like a fun seeking pretty cool australian
0: yeah and she also happens to be the only other character in the story other than mr jones so we're done (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only other character of import. That
1: are not Tommy and
0: Tubbins. Yeah, there are tangential characters in this who we'll get to, but it's about the two of them. I think it's time to talk about the world as it appears to be. What do you think?
1: I think that we don't have a choice because there's <laughs> nothing else to talk about. So yeah, let's go for it.
0: All right. Well, Mr. Montgomery Jones shows up at the offices of Mr. Blunt, which is, of course, Tommy Beresford. Mm-hmm. And um, he is desperately in need of assistance. You see, he has sm- with a beautiful and sassy Australian lady, Miss Una Drake. She
1: is sassy and fun-loving and Australian, so why would you not like that?
0: Exactly. I mean, those are three pretty fantastic qualities in a person. So she has posed <laughs> to him a challenge because these two, they love them some mystery novels. like They do? Yeah, like others, for example the host of this very podcast, and perhaps you, dear listener, as well. So I feel them on that. And what does Miss Una Drake propose?
1: She has told him that if he wants to win her over, he needs to crack an unbreakable alibi, which I have to say is a pretty good topic for a date. I kind of think that if I were crafting like a Tinder profile, now maybe I would steal that. (laughs) Because (laughs) It is an intriguing question. So what she tells him is that she was in two places at the same time. She's in London and Turkey. Now go.
0: Right. And it's interesting because this is a story for which we do have an adaptation. And mm-hmm. the story... The stakes within the story are a little different from the stakes within the adaptation because I believe in the story, it's more just of a general challenge, right, that she makes to him. She says, I'm going to give you this challenge and you need to figure it out. And he's beside himself because he realizes, I really want to ask this woman to marry me because I'm just desperately in love with her. And if I don't figure this out, she's never really going to respect me and she's probably not going to accept my offer and we're just not going to be able to make a go of it but that's all inferred on his part the stakes in the adaptation are a little different where she actually says i'll make you a sporting offer what do you bet that i can produce an alibi that nobody can shake? anything you like <laughs> if i were you i wouldn't risk too much
1: it's an odds-on chance for
0: me don't so sure of that supposing you lose and i ask you something will you pay up i gambling family. I don't Welsh on my bets. Well, if I win, I'll ask you to marry me.
1: <laughs> Very well, you're on. And if I win, we'll never see each other again. I kind
0: of almost prefer the adaptation because this whole thing is so silly. Well, I
1: mean, I I would say that wouldn't you prefer that it were playful?
0: Do you think that the original version is more playful?
1: I think so. It's very hard to understand her motivation, perhaps. Um, But I do, but I do think that it is more playful in the short story than it is in the than it is in the adaptation.
0: Yeah, I think the adaptation is more absurd, but absurd in that Woodhouseian way that Christie is often nailing in short stories. Anyway, so I don't think it's inappropriate to the story. I don't think it's sort of like violating really? the spirit of the story. Really? It's just, no, it's just different. I don't think so. It's just yeah. different. So of course, Mr. Jones has no idea what to do because again, major dum-dum. So he heads off to seek the talents of Mr. Blunt.
1: Mr. Blunt's also, uh, let's be honest, kind of a dum-dum about this. So um, it's really Tuppence who is leading this. Well, and by the way,
0: and we should point out because it is really funny, but in the beginning when Mr. Jones first makes contact with Tommy and Tuppence, Tommy's the one who reads the letter. And even though Tommy himself is not, as we have said necessarily, all of that book smart, he notices that Mr. Jones must be expensively educated because he's such a terrible speller. Which is like immediately (laughs) funny. So his letter is practically illiterate. And by the way, we do get a little reference. Tuppence has actually heard of Montgomery Jones because he's been mentioned by Janet St. Vincent. Janet St. Vincent was that shop girl who married quite well within the Mm -hmm. first story within this collection, The Affair of the Pink Pearl let's never forget the Affair of the Pink Pearl. So, what's happened is that Una Drake has put this problem in front of Montgomery Jones here and said, here is proof that I was in London and here is proof that I was in Turkey. Now you have to figure out where I actually was or what the trick is here. Well,
1: right, and she hands over everything. It's like she does not even bother to try to cover up something. She hands over all of her receipts and she gives names. So as I said, she's got the receipts.
0: She has the literal receipts.
1: This is one of the few times where I will say that you can say literally and mean it. <laughs> she dined in Soho. She saw a show. And she has this witness by the name of Mr. Marchant, um, who she was with at the Savoy. Mm-hmm. And the waiters all saw her. Even with Tommy and Tappet's armed with photographs, everybody saw her.
0: They do the photographic array, mm-hmm. right? They don't yeah. even say, mm-hmm. did you see this specific girl? They take a whole bunch of photos. Yeah,
1: and they all saw her.
0: Yeah, they're like, okay, well then obviously she was she was in London, so that's fine. Let's just go to Torquay right? and, and make sure that she wasn't there.
1: Although secretly, <laughs> do you think that maybe Tommy and Tappet's also kind of wanted to take a trip to Torquay?
0: <laughs> totally. And you know, lest we forget, Agatha Christie's from Torquay, so she obviously thinks it's lovely. We should
1: never forget We should that.
0: never <laughs> forget. And by the way, I'm really big on the little references here within the story, but there's also a reference to Jane's flat because when they're trying to get an array of photographs, it's really funny. Tuppence notes that in a regular detective story, that would be something incidental that you wouldn't even worry about. You would just sort of appear with an array of photographs, but right. they go to a bunch of photographers and say, um, could you like give us a couple of photographs of some young ladies? And the <laughs> photographers are like, no creepy man. I'm not giving you any photographs <laughs> of young know. ladies. And,
1: and, and, and I also have to say, <laughs> I also have to say it's yet another reminder, which we've talked about before that Tommy and Toppins are not very good detectives.
0: They're terrible at their job. They're just it's really, terrible. really bad at it.
1: You have I have one job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what they have to do is go to Toppence's friend Jane's flat. And I found myself wondering if that was Jane Finn from The Secret Adversary. Mm -hmm. Jane Finn was supposed to get married at the end of The Secret Adversary. But I now have a little theory here that perhaps Jane Finn did not find the marital bliss that she is supposed to have found at the end of the novel. That makes me
1: really sad because this is 1928 now. So it's been a number of years later.
0: Well, you know what? She is living the high life. It's the twenties. There's champagne flowing. She's got her little fringe on her flapper dress. She is living it up. That's what I prefer to think. In her flat, where she's got photos of all of her single, flirty female and then friends she gives lying around.
1: Over from <laughs> investigation, sure. Mm-hmm.
0: She's no longer being kidnapped and having to pretend that yeah. she's a French woman relying on her high school French as an American teenager because Americans know French so well.
1: And also she doesn't have PTSD. <laughs>
0: it's all looking a lot better for Jane. Anyway, <laughs> Jane, perhaps Finn, provides them with these photographs. And yes, they go through this London alibi and they feel quite satisfied um, before getting to Turkey. And we should also note the author who is being referenced within this short story, as always happens within the Partners in Crime collection, that author would be Freeman Wills Crofts, who is an important golden age mystery writer. And this is someone who is actually known for writing rather. (laughs) This is a sort of mean way of describing him, but he's known as being of the, quote, humdrum school in that he wrote somewhat plotting police procedural type of books and many see him as the forerunner to the police procedural which is obviously a subgenre that has become spectacularly successful but he tended to focus on alibis his main detective was inspector joseph french who is also directly referenced in this story you know he repeatedly would, repeatedly he would doggedly track down alibis and try to bust them and figure out if people really were where they were when they said they were. And this is also sort of fascinating, but Freeman Wills Croft had a career working as a railway engineer for more than 20 years before he published his first novel, which he did when he was 40. This is why there's also a lot about trains in this specific short story, because that too is a reference to Crofts. in that being a railway engineer, there was a lot of focus on trains and train timetables and the riding of trains in his books.
1: And I would say one of the interesting things that we can't really do in this format at this moment, but when we've been talking about the Tommy and Tuppins, it is very interesting to talk about the works that are The reference points Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and they are very specific. Christy, very specifically, was crafting the entire mystery around these pre existing works.
0: I mean, this is like Christy being able to express her love of you know, mystery novels as a reader, right? And Freeman Wills Cross, we've also talked about how these authors who are referenced within this collection run the gamut from totally forgotten to still popular to this day. We don't read him. We don't, but I would say he is somewhere more in the middle because actually I'm not going to pretend to have read it yet, but I actually do have his first published novel which is called The Cask which apparently is really a fundamental text within the Golden Age mystery novel. And that's why it's sitting on my night table, because I've been meaning to read it and I should have read it and I hopefully will read it soon. And he still is published. I mean, he's certainly in print. He's not super popular, but he hasn't been lost as some of these other writers have. Back to alibi busting, or lack thereof, Tommy and Tuppence go on down to Torquay. They take the train down to Torquay and they actually are lucky enough to come into contact with the attendant on the train at lunch, who was also on duty when Miss Una Drake was allegedly taking the train down. And they ask, using their photo array, which they now have on hand, if any of these ladies had lunch on this train on Tuesday last. And the attendant says, yeah, that one, and points to Una Drake. They're like, "Okay, well, she probably just booked at the hotel and then hoofed it back to London. That's fine. She could have been on the train. And then they get to the hotel, and at the hotel, they find all sorts of people who completely remember Miss Una Drake and talk about how lovely she was and what a lovely stay she had. She dined there in the hotel dining room. Mm-hmm. This one woman says, you know, I remember she had on a most sweetly pretty frock, one of these new flowered chiffons all over pansies. Yeah, pansies. And they're like, okay... It just kind of gets worse and worse. The waiter also remembers her. And it really does seem as if she has been in two places at once.
1: It's one step away from wearing a bright red flag and, like, dancing around the hotel and saying, look at me, I'm here.
0: Yeah, the chambermaid even remembers her. Yeah, She said that remembers. she was so nice. Yeah, it's like not only was she there, but she clearly went out of her way to make herself noticed. So that's kind of where we are at the end of the world as it appears to be. It seems as if she has somehow managed to be in two places at once and they are at a loss. And if they're at a loss, Montgomery Jones is at a loss and he is not going to get his girl, so to speak. And horror upon horror, if that should be the case. So how do we solve this, Catherine?
1: So the world as it actually is, I think that we can safely say there are really no clues in this story, in part because, you know what, it's not complicated. This is actually one of the least complicated mysteries we have ever talked about.
0: I think there is one very clunky clue, and it is one, two, three pages before the end of the story. This clue comes from Tommy. Tommy and Tuppence, they've gone through this whole timeline, right? Which, again, is very Freeman-Wills-Cross.
1: Well, right. And so the timeline is also a very, very prominent point in this story. And so we have 10 times that they track down where and when they see Una Drake.
0: Eating lunch in the car of a train at 1.30 p.m. This is all within mm-hmm. the same day. Yep. Then at 4, she arrives at the hotel in Torquay, definitely mm-hmm. seen there. Then she's seen in London at 5. Then she's seen dining in the hotel back at Torquay at 7. Then at 9.30, she asks for a hot water bottle, so she still has to be at the hotel then. Then at 11.30 p.m., just two hours later, she's seen at the Savoy with Mr. Le Marchand. And then there are no trains running. And at 7.30 a.m. the next morning in Torquay, the chambermaid has absolutely seen her at the hotel. And then at 9 a.m., she is in her lodgings in London. So they're like, uh, that doesn't make sense at all. And we don't know what's happening. And they're complaining and just sort of grousing about how miserable this is. And Tommy says, we ought to have gone to a music hall. A few good jokes about mothers-in-law and twins and bottles of beer would have done us no end of good. That was a miniature version, but we are in a short story. That was a miniature version of a laundry list. Mothers-in-law and twins and bottles of beer. And which one of those was stuck in the middle of that laundry list? Would that be
1: twins? It might be twins. Yeah. So our our dear listeners...
0: Yeah. We apologize, but the solution of this case is twins. As Tuppence figures out, since Tuppence is the deep thinker of the pair, for sure, Una has a twin sister, Vera, who arrived in England last Monday. That is why she was able to make this bet so spontaneously. She thought it would be a frightful rag on poor Montgomery Jones. The sister went to Torquay, and she stayed in London. Were you able to solve it before you got to the end of the story, Catherine? Yes,
1: and also (laughs) also, I would have to say that I apologize to anybody listening to this podcast, because you would kind of have to assume it was twins. Because what (laughs) other explanation is there?
0: Well, and it, of course, made me think of Murder on the Links, where we also had twins, one Mm. of whom, of course, famously or perhaps infamously, married our dear Captain Hastings and took him off to Argentina, although I suppose maybe maybe he took her off to Argentina, I don't know, but it it led to them going to Argentina. And also,
1: you know, she might have exiled him from Argentina.
0: (laughs) That's true, last we heard.
1: Last we heard, um, Cinderella (laughs) was not, she was not exactly having him.
0: Although I think we can take solace from the fact that there are no more Hastings narrated novels until Curtin, so... Let's just assume he's back in domestic bliss on his ranch in Argentina. In Argentina. Yeah, with yeah his, I guess so. He's raising his four children. He's living the good life.
1: We hope that for him because we love Captain A's Days.
0: I remember opining on that episode that twins are cheap. It was one reason why I, I wasn't totally <laughs> yeah. enamored of, of that novel. And I feel similarly here, but of course, it's a fun short story, so it's not egregious. And I will say this is another way in which the adaptation differs in that, in the adaptation, there's a reference made to astral projection. This is a physical impossibility for one person to be in two places at the same time. I suppose there's nothing in the theory of astral bodies. Astral bodies? Couldn't be. I've just thought
1: of something. Come on out with it. No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to send a cable first. See you in a gif, darling.
0: There's at least a tiny bit of nuance there. Twins can achieve the effect of astral projection.
1: Toppins is the one who figures out everything. And it's Toppins who goes to sleep and wakes up in the morning, makes herself some coffee, makes some eggs, and says, you know what? I had a thought overnight. Twins. It's twins.
0: And I have one more thing to say about this whole twins solution within the world of Tommy and Tuppence. And this also, I think, is an argument for its appropriateness. This is perhaps a little bit of foreshadowing for something that may be in Tommy and Tuppence's own future. Mm -hmm. Because yes, Tommy and Tuppence will go on as they get a little bit older to have twins themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the adaptation, because we often, in talking about this series, the Francesca Annis and James Warwick series, we talk about how slavishly faithful it is to the stories as written. This is one of the rare cases in which it's not entirely faithful, and I have to think that the reason for that is that this is such a slight story, they had to do a little bit of invention to fill out 50 minutes or however long it was to run at an hour with commercials so we certainly have the bones of the story as written but as i you know as i mentioned the stakes are changed a little bit so if montgomery loses the bet then he'll never see her again so there's that there's also by the way this really weird scene that maybe i was just interpreting incorrectly where it almost seemed to be implied that tommy was maybe cheating on tuppence or had been dining with another woman and i thought you'd never been here before oh yes but not for some time i used to pop in now and then in my salad days. that can't be too long ago. your boss is a bit of a dark horse Miss Robinson. I'd wager he's one for the ladies. you should keep an eye on him. I intend to. all over and done with. you can't fool us. I, I should have thought. well maybe there's someone you'd like to have invited to join us. no. no I assure you no one at all. oh what a pity Mr. Blunt. That would have been fascinating.
1: Yeah, but but I don't know exactly how to interpret that. It
0: was really bizarre, and I think it's mainly just supposed to be a joke because I don't think we're ever really supposed to question the health of the Beresford's marriage, but I did not appreciate that.
1: No, I didn't either. And also, by the way, I actually don't like the stakes in the adaptation because, as I said earlier, I think it's more interesting. I was like, okay, well, you know what? You are courting me. Why don't you impress me by figuring this out? I think that the lower stakes are actually more interesting in their own way than... The elevation, which comes across a little bit weird.
0: I guess. I mean, again, I think it just plays as absurd. And honestly, it becomes beside the point because this episode veers into a whole other area in its second half when they start doing some invention because there's this whole side plot with Peter Lamarchant from the story who is a key part of Una Drake's London Alibi. So apparently he's a criminal in the adaptation who got Una into an art heist scheme because she has gambling debts, okay? And she ends up killing him. She actually pulls a gun on Tommy and Tuppence in their office. It would be better for you if you weren't so clever. I warn both of you to stay out of my affairs. Give me the gun. You're not going to use it. Don't be so sure. There's just a whole lot of insane drama going on. What it turns out to be is that Una accidentally kills Peter Le Marchant, And I want to call out the scene in which that happens for being one of the most badly blocked televised scenes ever on television. She basically throws a drink in his face. He slaps her. She pushes him and he falls on the table and there's a close up of him falling. But it's not even on a part of his head that would have bled if it was hit and it's not even hit very hard it's so clearly not a fatal fall that it's laughable and then he's dead and then Montgomery is going to see that Una gets a good defense because he says well she didn't really mean to do it And in this version, it's pretty clear that Una doesn't really care for Montgomery at all and doesn't want to be married to him. Maybe if if he actually puts up a good defense of her and she gets off, she'll reward him by reluctantly becoming married to him. But it's certainly not a happy ending. Whereas in the original, Tuppence intuits, and we feel like she's intuiting it correctly, that one as spirited and audacious as Una Drake would not be putting herself in the position to be taken in by montgomery jones if she didn't want to be so that if he's successful he will propose and she will accept happily but he needs to prove himself to her for her to accept him and that if he passes this test they will have a happy result we certainly do not get that happy ending here in the adaptation
1: do you think that if either one of us said to a potential partner today okay well maybe i killed this guy can you figure this out (laughs) I'll give you 48 hours. Would that be somebody you wanted to marry?
0: The initial test is just, I'm giving you an impossible, a seemingly impossible problem. Can you solve it? Are you smart enough? It's a test of intelligence and ingenuity.
1: Yeah. Neither of which
0: Montgomery Jones has.
1: No, he has neither.
0: And it's sort of funny that Tommy and Tuppence have no, and this is, we're talking about the original story now, of course, but Tommy and Tuppence have no qualms about helping Montgomery Jones. I think mainly because they know that he's going to be so happy to have the result that he wants that he'll pay he's them a lot of money.
1: He's cheating, yeah. <laughs> he's cheating and they are bored and they need money. So, like, who cares?
0: Yeah, Tuppence's theory that she really wants to marry him anyway is rather convenient, Though I do it's find it convincing.
1: Very convenient. I think that Toppins is incredibly practical. Yeah.
0: The twin solution to this alibi-heavy story is also an amusing way to resolve what seems to be a Freeman Willscroft sort of Right. puzzle yeah. because that is never the way that those are solved those are solved by grinding your way through okay at five forty-five, this train left here and doing those sorts of math right. and, problems and,
1: and none of that matters it's none just of it matters. like yeah. n- literally none of those times that whole list that they provide none of it matters all it is that they're twins
0: i enjoyed it fun frothy yeah. tommy and Toppins. well you
1: know what i always like tommy and Toppins. i think they're delightful
0: So that is The Unbreakable Alibi. Join us next week for another short story taken from the Listerdale Mystery Collection. We haven't gone to that well in a number of weeks. We are going to be covering Sing a Song of Sixpence.
1: Pocket full of rye. <laughs> Four and twenty black birds baked in a pie.
0: It is kind of funny that the second part of that line is, of course, another Christie novel that we won't be getting yeah. to in- for quite some time, a Miss Marple. The woman loves her nursery rhymes, didn't she?
1: Well, you know what? When you put them in the cause of murder, they end up being exceptionally creepy. This
0: is true. So, stay tuned for that, and in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're also on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat, and we are on Instagram at All About Agatha. Take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps out the podcast, helps other people find us, and we will see you next time. Bye!
1: Bye. Bye.